gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this Fun Zone Film Podcast. I am Scott Morris and I am joined today by my good friend Craig Eastman. Craig. I watched a snail crawl along the edge of a razor. Uh, this is my dream. This was my nightmare. Don't eat so much cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, so. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why we're at the, uh, the apocalypse now. <laughs> <laughs> introduction. <laughs> uh, but today we're actually, in fact, not talking about uh, crazy old what's-his-face. No, it's uh, the planet Mars. So I've uh, thrown you for a loop, haven't I? Yeah, it was unexpected. Um, They're only going to get more disassociated as the as the podcast go on, Scott. It's just my thing now. It's my desperate, desperate attempt at having a thing. <laughs> Your thing is <laughs> mental? Validate me, internet! Validate me! <laughs> anyway, no... Um, no apocalypse now. Today we are talking no. about Mars, and uh, humans have been mapping ideas and aspirations onto our next door planetary neighbour. Well, some of the time, depending on how the orbits work out. Um, but <laughs> we've been doing that for about as long as we've had ideas and aspirations. And uh, now that we've been able to orbit and land there, or at least our little robot buddies have, we've dispelled the notions of canals and thriving Martian societies that was in vogue for sci-fi for quite a while. <laughs> um, and we are, for the most part... But we're not going to completely ignore the kind of Barsoom, John Carter-esque era, uh, but for the most part we'll be talking about films that take a... Well, the more modern films that take a starting point of being a little closer to what we actually know about the big red rock. Uh, but apart from Doom, obviously. That's just <laughs> bananas. Uh, <laughs> but speaking of that more fanciful era of Mars, mm. Robinson Crusoe on Mars presents yeah. us with a representative sample of that era and also a rare instance of the elevator pitch surviving to become the title of the finished film. <laughs> Great. Yes. Let's look at that. <laughs> Robinson Crusoe on Mars, or as we shall henceforth be referring to it, Scott, the greatest gift granted to cinema by the 1960s. <laughs> uh, helmed by journeyman director Brian... Oh, Brian. Byron Haskin. Uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars begins with an orbiting Martian gravity probe mission crewed by Colonel Dan McCready, Adam West, and Commander Kit Draper, Paul Mantee, going a bit Pete Tong when an orbiting asteroid forces them to take evasive manoeuvres. Through some contrivance I now forget, Draper ends up leaving McCready in orbit while he crashes to the Martian surface in a capsule, beginning what is marketed as a desperate and, to quote the original poster, scientifically authentic <laughs> quest for food, water and air. The reason I forget why Draper and McCready were separated is because this movie opens hard on the boomwow, giving you Batman and a zero-G space-suited monkey in the first 90 seconds. So <laughs> let's be perfectly clear here. Whatever happens from this point forward is completely irrelevant. This <laughs> is a five-star movie by default. <laughs> Now, the desperation with which Draper must go about his quest for survival is only desperation in the sense of that one time you said you were desperate for the toilet whilst a passenger in a car, only to realise upon getting out that you were sitting awkwardly and putting pressure on your bladder all along. <laughs> if you're in the market for some sort of document as to how a movie can go about undermining its whole premise within moments of having set it up, then boy have I got a treat for you. So desperate is Draper for air that, while scouting the atmospheric hellhole that is the surface of Mars, he 
routinely flips his worryingly slack visor up and down with gay abandon, <laughs> often with no purpose in doing so, and certainly with no consequence. It shortly transpires that Draper can go 15 minutes at a time without having to top up his oxygen, because of course he can. And when he does, he does that by huffing it to directly from the valve of his presumably highly pressurised oxygen tank. <laughs> The, pro <laughs> the problem is eradicated entirely upon the discovery of oxygenating rocks. How convenient. And similarly, the food issue is licked in record time by the discovery of poi sausages, <laughs> which look exactly like lengths of salami stuffed inside modelling balloons. It turns out upon inspecting the movie's production history that this is in fact because they were lengths of salami stuffed inside balloons. <laughs> Oh, and the monkey shows him where to find water, in case you were wondering. Uh, it soon becomes apparent that the movie's claim of scientific authenticity was clearly the work of an overly zealous marketing department, or possibly a lunatic, and the movie offers enough evidence of the latter to make it an utterly obvious outcome upon the application of Occam's razor. Fortunately, for all its boneheaded stupidity and downright daftness, Robinson Crusoe on Mars is a thoroughly enjoyable slice of technicolour schlock. The all-encompassing bizarreness of the opening hour carried me along in a wave of absolute disbelief that never really subsided, uh, even when we were introduced to Friday just after the halfway point. In fact, at this point, the movie actually takes a turn for the worse, in my opinion, with the relationship between Draper and his new companion, uh, a conveniently humanoid uh, uh, human from somewhere on Orion's <laughs> belt, failing to entertain as much as it should. That is perhaps as much the fault of the certifiably bonkers first act raising, <laughs> raising to such a crescendo <laughs> that it drowns out everything around it, including Victor London's performance as, essentially, a Native American who happens to have woken up on a life-supporting Mars with a bag of M&Ms as his air supply, I shit you not, and who learns conversational English in the space of what appears to be a day, maybe two at tops. There's so much wrong with Robinson Crusoe on Mars that it beggars belief, and yet, despite that, it somehow hangs together so determinedly under its own demented internal logic that it completely won me over. I was initially baffled as to why this movie was part of the Criterion Collection, but I kind of get it now. It's a self-contained cross-section of 60s B-movie sci-fi that so perfectly encapsulates the genre, it almost renders its peers redundant. Heartily recommended. And Scott, I think I made more notes on Robinson Crusoe on Mars <laughs> than I have for any other movie in my life. What an amazing slice of cinema. It, it, it's certainly a film that raises far more questions than it answers or <laughs> even addresses any form at all. Like, why is there a breathable atmosphere on Mars? Why do the rocks produce oxygen when heated? What's the deal with these randomly roaming fireballs? Why is there water on Mars? Why is there a race of human slaves on Mars? Who's enslaving them? Why, when it seems very much like the more advanced spacecraft, don't they care that much about humans invading their territory? Why is there a plant on Mars that grows pepperoni sausages? Why are the pepperoni sausages safe if eaten raw, but powerful hallucinogens when cooked? Why did they bring a monkey to Mars? <laughs> they weren't even supposed to land. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely joyous! I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned the fireball thing because that was the first thing that caught me that caught me completely broadside, and I laughed myself silly at it. And I thought, well, that's a silly thing. And by Jove, within 
I don't know, conservative estimate, 60 seconds, that had become <laughs> the most logical thing. To, of, of course, there's happened. apparently sentient fireballs running around. Why not? Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> well, it's just phenomenal. The whole thing, the whole mission itself, or certainly the sort of the training of these guys seems so so embedded in buffoonery right from the off. <laughs> this guy, Draper, <laughs> chooses the worst landing spot imaginable for his capsule. He decides to land it. Not only amongst these towering, this towering wall of flames that is just for some reason sprouting from the surface of Mars, but also on the edge of a cliff, which it duly topples over. Oh dear! It does seem it does seem somewhat surprised to have a slow horizontal fireball doddle past him and somehow trash the capsule. Beyond that point, of course, but. Uh, do you know I, I, that that whole opening act is just so amazing? The point at which he immediately hears what is plainly a hostile alien life form <laughs> screeching murderous intent. No problem, dude. I've got my <laughs> I've got my standard issue NASA emergency hand cannon <laughs> with again conservative estimate like an eight inch barrel on it. <laughs> It's one of those crazy, like, break barrel single shot cartridge pistol things. It's totally what astronauts carry into space. And the noise, the noise turns out to be a loose strap vibrating in the wind, as no strap has ever done in the history of wind or straps. I, I honestly thought, I thought I must have had some poi sausage myself, Scott, cooked, obviously. It's just so absolutely bizarre. So absolutely bizarre. The guy war- the guy decides to try and warm his hands through what is presumably like an insulated spacesuit by walking <laughs> walking up to a crevasse <laughs> that is sprouting flames <laughs> and holding his hands up to it. And then <laughs> and then gets to- <laughs> then gets toasted by a Hadouken. <laughs> Unless <laughs> Let's out this amazing scream that becomes like a motif for the next five minutes because he then just stumbles about. He sets off exploring the landscape of Mars and immediately falls off another another cliff. <laughs> At which point, I'm thinking, note to self, establish better understanding of cliffs. <laughs> and let's out this yell again. Which I'm pretty sure was just the same. Bah! Dubbed back, <laughs> dubbed back over the scene. Honestly, I was beginning to suspect that this guy had cheated his astronaut exam. It's such a joyous thing. It is so. These people are the most, are the furthest removed from astronaut material that you can possibly have, and the preparation that has gone into the supposed Mars mission is as far removed from proper space mission parameters as you can imagine. <laughs> The point at which I realised he was just flipping open his visor. <laughs> what? Just to like, get a better view. Oh, it's a bit I dusty. Thought, yeah, I thought, this can't... This can't get any worse. <laughs> and then at one point he said, in order to lament the fact the lack of atmosphere won't allow him to start a fire... He opens it. Sorry, he opens his visor <laughs> to lament the fact the lack of atmosphere won't allow him to start a fire with the book of hotel matches <laughs> that he's brought on a space mission to Mars. <laughs> oh, 
Scott, what's happening? <laughs> it's like you showed up late for the launch after a wild night out and just, just got straight into the capsule. Right, his gloves are in zip the whole time. His space is comprised of zips, which I'm pretty sure aren't airtight. But he's walking about with his gloves off the whole time. <laughs> no problem, bro. <laughs> It's just honestly to the point where I don't know why they even bothered to pretend the guy was on Mars. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> oh, oh dear. I'm sorry. I've got so many notes. I've got so many notes, but we'd probably just burn the whole podcast going through them. I I don't know. I mean, do you share my do you share my joy at this movie, Scott? Certainly for the first hour. Um, I think more or less like you say, when when Friday joins up, I kind of tuned out and stopped paying a hell of a lot of attention, apart from things like his, uh, his NASA issue camera on a stick uh, that we're using to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, to scope out what's been going on <laughs> over like the cliff. Like track voice recorder that's the size of, like, cabin luggage. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, I don't know. It's it's definitely worth watching about the first forty five minutes of this film. I think by that point you've probably got the gist of it and could probably skip the rest of it. Yeah. Um, it's and I I don't really quite understand why this is in the Criterion Collection. I think it must have been an elaborate <laughs> April Fool's prank. But um, I mean, yeah, it, it does, as I say, give a really good example of the sort of nonsense that sixties science fiction was getting away with and saying was scientifically accurate. It's, it's, it's is, probably it's probably difficult for us to appreciate outside of the US, but I suppose where I'm coming from is that I I guess 60s sci-fi B-movies are such an entrenched and informed part of the American cultural psyche, right? Certainly for like two, three generations, that this it kind of does serve a purpose because for all its for all its jankiness in the writing, like some some of the well, some of the production value for the time on this movie seems quite good. It's actually, in a sense, the sort of the technicolor presentation of this, the setters, it was actually quite appealing in some respects. Mm. It it represents in in some facets the um, the best of the genre, but. Honestly, in terms of in terms of the inception and the thought which has gone into this, I think the most obvious joke is that I can't understand how anyone could have been convinced that this had any scientific <laughs> authenticity whatsoever. The biggest joke has to be that emblazoned across the poster. Yeah. Um. But oh my goodness, what a what a what a remarkable amount of fun I had. Like you say, for the first hour, I, <laughs> I honestly, if it. If the rest of the movie, if the last 45 minutes of the movie had been Draper and Mona the monkey, different kettle yeah. of fish. Friday turning up is uh, is definitely like a turning point. But I love this relationship that he has with Mona the monkey. He's so super excited to see her when he comes across the other crash capsule. He's so excited to see Mona, although he does come within a fraction of a second <laughs> of blowing her head off with his crazy <laughs> hand cannon. And then as he's running out of oxygen... He opens up his rations so that, quote, at least you'll have a full belly, and gives them to the monkey. And then he records his dying voice memo, conks out, regains oxygen by the daftest of chemical contrivances, and then immediately, <laughs> fuck you, give me my rations back. <laughs> it's, absolutely, it's absolutely inspired. It's absolutely demented, and I cannot, honestly, I think, I think, I would say I recommend it heartily, but yeah, perhaps you're um, perhaps the provision you provide there is um, is best. Honestly, at the point at which Friday shows up, probably press stop, and you'll have had like a rip roaring hour of entertainment. That honestly, I haven't <laughs> had that much fun 
uh, watching a movie in such a long time. I actually had to go back and watch that first hour again because I was making, I was pausing to make so many notes, um, and I realised <laughs> that actually, what what am I doing? I need to go back and, and I stopped taking notes from that point and uh, and just and watch the thing again from the start. And how much fun! Unbelievable. But yes, uh, the last forty five minutes you could you could lose down the back of the sofa quite happily. I think yes, and certainly if you're a fan of the, the kind of kitsch sixties sci fi aesthetic and the, the well that, that sort of Barbarella sort of thing, then you'll probably get a lot of enjoyment out of uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Uh, yeah. That, it had lost me by the end. If you think if you sit down and watch it all in one sitting, I I got bored enough by the end of it that I couldn't recommend it. But mm. yeah, there, there's a there's a solid first hour of just logic and reason defying laughs to be had from what was going on. <laughs> the, the, I loved the bit the oxygen in these rocks. I've got to find some way to store it. Um, in the rocks, <laughs> perhaps by piling the rocks in the corner. It's also got. If I were this guy and I got to Mars and I was stranded there and I had to break out this thing labelled as emergency survival video, right? And I turned it on, and I kid you not. The the survival expert in the video <laughs> speaks the lines. Water is where you find it. The thing is to know where to find it. At that, <laughs> at that point, I would have smashed the equipment <laughs> in a blind rage. And also, dude, kill the monkey. The monkey is a resource thief, right? <laughs> Eat the monkey. Eat the monkey, but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Crazy, a crazy, crazy movie. I think we've probably discussed it enough by this point. Although, having said that, I think it's probably about sixty seconds worth of discussion if you if we edit out my laughter. But um, <laughs> let's let's move on, Scott. In chronological chronological order, we we take quite a leap um, from Robinson Crusoe on Mars to Total Recall. Yes, um, perhaps not one of the more realistic examples, but certainly one of the most fun. Uh, we. Join Arnold Schwarzenegger's Duke Quaid, brother of Charisma Vacuum Dennis, who appears to be a <laughs> simple, mild-mannered construction worker on Earth, but he's becoming increasingly obsessed with going to Mars, much to his wife uh, Laurie, played by Sharon Stone's dismay. There is, however, another way to get the Martian experience. Have the recall company implant a memory of a perfect two-week holiday. Or, for a small extra fee... Combine it with a secret agent story, uh, where you're chased across Earth and Mars, fighting the bad guys, saving the planet, and getting the girl. Unfortunately, the memory implant goes wrong, seeming to clash with an earlier mind wipe. The recall staff panic, sedating the agitated Quaid, removing any reference to them in his mind, and sticking him in a cab home. Puzzled as to how he got there, Quaid doesn't have the time to work out anything before he's waylaid by a few of his construction worker mates, who seem rather disappointed that he blabbed. He blabbed about Mars. The punishment for blabbing? Death. But being Arnie, death's not on the table, so after he dispatches them with an efficiency that surprises himself, he heads back home, only to find his wife part of the conspiracy too. Escaping a trap, now with Richter, uh, Michael Ironside, and his squad of goons on his tail, Quaid is aided by an old agency buddy giving him a suitcase uh, containing cash, a tool for removing the tracking device, a useful hologram generator, and a video from himself. His past self's advice, get his ass to Mars, join <laughs> up with the Resistance, and uncover the buried mental treasure to get enough dirt to screw the villainous Vilos Cohagen, uh, the governor of Mars, of course, obviously Ronnie Cox, uh, out of his job and also preferably his life. Uh, Quaid sets about doing just that, meeting up with an old flame that he can't remember, Melina, uh, Rachel Tigothan, 
and the mysterious psychic leader of the Mutant Rebellion on Mars, Guato. Uh, Cohagen's goons are in hot pursuit, and while Quaid and Melina slip away, Quato takes a bullet to the head. Well, one of his heads, at least. So, it's left to Quaid to action Quato's last agenda items, freeing Mars from Cohagen's dictatorship by starting the half-million-year-old alien reactor Cohagen's been trying to keep secret, which will either destroy the planet or convert the planet's ice and precious turbidium ore into a breathable atmosphere. Uh, now, I love Total Recall, and I have since first clapping eyes on it. It's the first. Uh, per- it's the perfect combination of Arnold's over-the-top persona, Paul Verhoeven's capacity for envelope pushing, uh, pushing, and or and his or perhaps his second unit's imaginative action set pieces and stunt work. In this era of PG-13 friendly action, uh, arguably it stands out even more today than it did on its release, and it's certainly still a very refreshing change of pace from, well, pretty much everything that's not <sighs> Deadpool. It's essentially peak Arnie action, but this time it's married to a plot that's actually more than something lazily scrawled on a napkin. While it's at best very, very loosely implied, inspired by the Philip K. Dick short story, it served to produce an engaging story with enough nuance to be argued uh, both ways as to whether this is a deranged fantasy of Quaid's or not. Of course, suggesting that it's not means placing a lot of trust in the mechanical engineering abilities of a half-million-year-old aliens, but uh, if you want to take it on face value, then you certainly can. However, if you want to look at this film through Dick's recurring questions of what exactly makes up her identity, then you can find this to be an unusually intelligently plotted action film, hidden under the camouflaging excess, perhaps rivaled only by Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Uh, mention must be made of the performances. While Arnie is, to an extent, gonna arn, uh, this is as close as he comes to a character with actual nuance, And the but it's the supporting antagonist that put this over the top, with Ronnie Cox and Michael Ironside being lovably loathsome, and Sharon Stone also given a decent range, uh, range of uh, emotions and action scenes to, to butt up against. Uh, the effects also, for the most part, hold up as well as the rest of the film. There's a few compositing colour artefacts that seem to have been impervious to the recent HD cleanup, but the scope of the world-building shots still look pretty good, and uh, you know, quite a, a trial to actually create when, when you read the production story. Uh, as for Rob Bottin's effects, including his bulgy-eyed head models, well, they're pretty much iconic, and they still look pretty effective today, although if I say, and as convincing, that's a bit more of a backhanded compliment, <laughs> uh, but they still bring joy to my heart. And I don't know if it's right to call this the thinking person's action film, but there's certainly more for the thinking person here than any of Arnie's other films, and indeed there's more here for any person, regardless of how much they want to think about their films. For my money, this is the best Hollywood action film to come out of the 90s, and it's certainly still well worth watching today. I would agree with that. I think it's not the thinking man's action movie, I think it's the action man's thinking movie. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, there's there's very little to find fault, and uh, Total Recall came along with its crazy, I think at the time it was a record budget, um, just at the sort of cusp of the CG era. So it's got that really heady blend that you only got for a couple of years around there of uh, model work um, and practical mm. effects and some sort of proto CG. And yep. it all works fantastically well in this sort of cartoonish, over-the-top Verhoeven um, context that we're also familiar with from from Robocop and such like. But this is 
peak Verhoeven. Like, if you're not a fan yeah. of violence, if you're easily screaming stuff, then you should probably turn away because, as, <laughs> as you say, as, as intriguing as the plot premise is and the notions that inform it, yeah, this is first and foremost an action movie <laughs> and it does not mind a bit of brutality. Honestly, I, I would probably agree that if I sit and look at a list of my favourite action movies of all time, this is going to be pretty much high up on the list, but certainly of the 90s, I don't think there's anything to touch it whatsoever. Um, it's it's brutal, it's far-fetched, it's indulgent, it's smart, um, much like Starship Troopers after it, a lot smarter than uh, one gets from Surface Impressions. Arnie, as you say, I'm not I'm not sure whether I say this was peak Arnie. I, I, I've seen Arnie attempt to emote more, but I think he is most <laughs> effective in what he achieves in this movie when working with Verhoeven. Um, Michael Ironside is just absolutely joyous. The guy, yeah. he, this, this was Michael Ironside. Everything's at its peak in this movie. This was peak Michael Ironside going back to his trailer and gargling razor blades every night, right? <laughs> yeah. Ronnie Cox is on, Ronnie Cox on bad guy cruise control is better than anyone else working hard to be a bad guy, right? Yeah. Um, Cohagen is absolutely amazing and the relish with which he, uh, I, I, for the sake of the edit, I'll stop throwing f bombs in because I think I've, I used enough of them during <laughs> Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Um, the sort of cold-hearted relish with which he flips a switch when someone suggests that he gives oxygen to people, <laughs> he flips yeah. a switch and says "f them." They pay less than the others. Um, <laughs> it's just he's just the most downright evil bad guy there is, and he has no motivation other than just being evil. Um, but Ronnie <laughs> Cox still somehow manages to make him, if not three-dimensional, then just so bombastic in two dimensions and so it imbues the, the role with so much relish in two, two dimensions that you, you can't be angry at it for that. Um, this movie is actually, as far as I remember, this movie is actually responsible for my uh, love of, of Philip K. Dick. When this came out on home video in, I can't remember if it was late, mid-91 or something like that here, I watched it. I think it was the first I'd been exposed to any Philip K. Dick stuff. And I watched this movie and I'm like, this was based on a film. This guy, Philip K. Dick, his stories must be off the chain. <laughs> it's got women with three breasts and crazy people getting their like pole shoved through their heads and stuff. This guy. <laughs> and of course, that couldn't be any further. Much no. as Starship Troopers, the movie couldn't be much further from Robert Heinlein yeah. and his, his works as an author. So Total Recall could barely be any further from um, the source material, uh, which is uh, a, a story called uh, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is a, a wonderful one of, Dick's work, one, one of Dick's most enjoyable works, actually. Check it out. It couldn't be any further from that, and it, it is very much its own thing, but there's enough of Dick's themes um, underpinning the movie and they're touched upon enough by Verhoeven that this isn't just disposable trash. It's got all the trappings of disposable trash, but actually a bit of a brain as well, just enough. Enough of a brain to not make you feel guilty about enjoying it as someone with some intellect, but also mm. not so much of a brain that if you just want a bit of mindless action that it detracts from the fact that people are just being like <laughs> bloodily taken apart in the most horrendous ways imaginable um it's an an absolute the absolute peak of 18 rated action cinema there is there was originally if i remember correctly is there not like a, a cut of this originally which was like uh wouldn't be wouldn't be certificated in the states or am i thinking of robocop um mm, and yeah. it's still a cut which has never been seen because i don't think the footage survived but it had to be trimmed to uh to avoid uh 
uh, not being granted a certificate or something like that. So I don't think we'll ever get to see that version of the movie, uh, which is a sh- which is a shame because I'd love to know how this could have been any more brutal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if if you're one of about three people who haven't seen Total Recall already, what are you doing with your life? Just stone cold classic. Yeah, so I think we move on the best part of a decade uh, in our little trip to Mars. Is the mission leaps here, to Scott. Mars here. Yes, we're we're bounding through time and space. For all <laughs> mankind. Yes. Mission, mission to Mars, you say, Scott? Yes. Oh, mission to Mars. Most people will tell you that Brian De Palma started going a bit wrong in the head around the bonfire of the vanities in 1990, uh, but that Carlito's way established that little trough as nothing more than a hiccup. 1996's Mission Impossible is a surprisingly effective and totally paced thriller in retrospect, though not received to much fanfare at the time, certainly by critics. In 1998, Snake Eyes appeared to many to signify that the champ was up against the ropes again, headed for the canvas. But here is my problem with that. I really, really like Snake Eyes, (laughs) as in really like it, and I'm not going to apologise for that. Unfortunately, two years later, in 2000, De Palma, now apparently forced to work for food, would deliver unto (laughs) us Mission to Mars. And at this point, I hold my hands up and say, Brian, mate, you're on your own now. (laughs) The movie movie conveniently opens at a NASA exposition barbecue, immediately ruling out the notion that this is the kind of sci-fi to treat its audience with any modicum of intelligence. Gary Sinise, a whore for anything Martian, is going to miss out on yet another opportunity to set foot on celestial soil following Apollo 13 because he is in mourning for his dead wife. Together, we are told they, quote, wrote the book on Mars, unquote, and yet it seems the best way to honour her memory, rather than take the opportunity to be the first to set foot there, as she wanted, would appear to be to mope around a well-appointed suburban detached family residence with ensuite bathrooms, large open-plan kitchen living area, ample driveway, and great potential for further expansion of (laughs) self-pity. At least that's the best way in Gary's eyes. Gary's cold... Dead, (laughs) snarling eyes. Don Cheadle, we learn, will go in Gary's place, which is at least less of a slap in the face on this occasion than being replaced by Kevin Bacon was. (laughs) Unfortunately, the expedition does not go as planned and the mission crew are barely on Mars five minutes before all but Cheadle are centrifugally separated limb from limb by a gigantic dust worm. Yes, dust worm. Time for Gary to man the bleep up and lead a Cheeto rescue mission. Along for the ride will be Connie, her from Gladiator, Nielsen, and, in a fashion that NASA would not entertain in a million years, her husband, Ernie Dufresne. Jerry O'Connell is also here, presumably sent along on a school science mission opportunity to sift the Martian strata for signs of fossilised acting ability. Now, while Gladiator and Ernie Dufresne are not busy rubbing their marital bliss in the face of Widow Sinise, they are most often to be found being voyeured upon by Jerry O'Connell, who manages a pretty impressive analogue of the room's Denny perving on Mark and Lisa. Any thoughts O'Connell might have had about some furtive space turbation or dealt a harsh blow when a micrometeorite blows a hole through his right hand and, unfortunately, the hull of the ship, venting precious oxygen and apparently subjecting the ship's computer to some kind of processor hypoxia. Um, <laughs> go figure why a computer slurs when it starts to <laughs> lose atmosphere. Uh, fortunately, Ernie Dufresne saves the day with some Dr. Pepper, whose reparative properties pertaining to space vessels is, it turns out, so misunderstood. <laughs> Anywho, blah, 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 and oh dear, etc., etc., 
Andy Dufresne is once again faced with the choice to get busy living or get busy dying, and this time he chooses the latter. Gladiator is sad for five minutes. By the time the remaining crew get to Mars and subdue the wild cheadle of Borneo in a greenhouse, you'll probably care very little about questions such as why is it they were going there again exactly? Or how was it people got eaten by a dust worm again? <laughs> you know that picture everyone tried to pass off as being an engineered face on the surface of Mars that clearly wasn't a face even in that photo, let alone after NASA happily presented the actual facts of it, and yet a lot of people are total f***ing idiots and still vociferously claimed it was an engineered face on the surface of Mars. Right, well there's an alien living in that, and all of its pals <laughs> f***ed off millennia ago. But it's still such a sore subject that when the NASA team are showing a fancy year three 3,000 PowerPoint of events leading up to Mars's evacuation, the alien sheds a single, shoddily rendered tear. <laughs> Everyone else goes home now, happy that something, something, extra chromosome, something, something, they see the earth, something, something, remember our dead colleagues? Me neither. Ha ha ha! Gary Sinise, who didn't even want to be there in the first place, decides now that actually his wife would have wanted him to catch a cosmic bus with a little alien and head off out into deep space, presumably to be made some sort of eternal sex slave in a cosmic basement somewhere. Mission to Mars is utterly unrecognisable as a Brian De Palma movie. So ill-conceived is it from its very genesis that I defy any director to have left their mark upon it without having ditched the script entirely and having made an entirely different movie. Quite what dirt the studio had on Brian and his talented cast plus Jerry O'Connell, may never be known, <laughs> but there is clearly nothing about the script that could have in any way, shape or form enticed them. I'm not even sure who the audience for this movie is. It's too patronising and emotionally condescending to appeal to sci-fi regulars, yet way too overtly sci-fi to appeal to casual viewers. The scientific bluster that we are clearly expected to take on faith is every bit as banal as that in Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and yet here we cannot excuse it on the grounds of kitsch, nor is it so desperately bad as to be entertaining in that sense. It's just stupid. <laughs> Had the final act been as equally remorselessly dull and wayward as the first hour and 20, Mission to Mars might have passed quietly by as simply a bad movie. However, it is not just dull and wayward, it is objectively atrocious, completely out of tone with the rest of the movie, and cemented in its fate by some terrible effects work. No sci-fi movie ever has benefited from such a trite saccharine denouement, and it baffles me completely as to whom passed this writing and by <laughs> what authority. As such, Mission to Mars remains a debacle that is entirely worthy of any and all derision that passes its way, and were it not for the cost of fresh produce these days, I'd happily sit and throw cabbages at it for the rest of my natural life. Go away. <laughs> oh, you're very harsh. It's just, I just found it very boring. Uh, uh, this is what I mean. It, apart from the ending, yes, I would almost yes. have accepted it just being bad and boring, not yeah, uh, ridiculous as well. But this is the Palmer's genius, though. He's he's dumbed you down. He's he's numbed your senses to the point for that first hour and twenty stretch, where when it shows up with these ludicrous aliens, which it has pulled directly from its ass, you just go, <laughs> "All right, fine," and then let it go. Because in any sane world, you would be throwing things at the screen at that point. But it's just, oh, sure, fine, fine, why not? A big stupid looking alien, fine, yeah. that'll do. Oh, I remember, <laughs> I remember now, movies went this way for a while. 
but yeah, as, as you mentioned, it's just uh, disappointing when uh, how how little De Palma there is on display in this film, especially after you know fairly recently going back to Mission Impossible and being surprised at how much of his stamp he put on uh, yeah. one of these kind of big budget things. And there is, oh, I mean, the only place that got close to being somewhat technically impressive was there's one reasonably impressive kind of tracking shot around their um, living quarters, which is all yeah, spinning yeah. around and stuff. And I thought that, that's quite good, but I mean, it's still basically just an evolution of 2001 shot. You know, it's not that far away, but that was the closest I could see to you know any of his uh, technique or any of his style being imparted on it. Um, a lot of the rest of it, up until the sort of horribly CG-infused ending, doesn't look that bad. It's framed relatively nicely, but just it's just all a bit boring. Mm. Uh, yeah, th- there's just not really anything in there. The performances are to a man dreadful. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, you would think that Robin's Cheadle and Sinise between them should have enough charisma to carry this sort of film. Exactly but, right. Usually Cheadle <sighs> on his own. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, there is just nothing here. I don't know if that was some sort of misguided attempt to show the professionalism of uh, a, a trained astronaut or something, but they just seem as bored with it as I was. And it is in no way, in no way, going to encourage you to enjoy a film of this just stoic boringness. It is uh, no, no, just very much not any good at all. There's it's just whole- no emotion in any of the film. It's yeah. baffling how little emotion there is, even when your husband dies. Yeah. For- <laughs> Why aren't you a bit more wrecked by this? I mean, it's it's good that you're focused on the mission. Fantastic. But come on, at least have a breakdown somewhere. Come on. So I, I, I don't care how well-trained you are as an astronaut. At the point at which you're one of the first people on Mars, you've no idea what's happening right about you, and a giant dust worm appears in front of you and starts <laughs> menacing you. Training goes out the window. They don't train for that. So <laughs> you would do anything. You would probably scream. You would try and run the other way. What these people do is stand and stare at it and go, "Oh, should we be scared of that?" It's clearly, it's <laughs> baffling that it's clearly intended to be by the filmmakers a menacing presence, and yet the characters don't react to it as such. <laughs> so on one hand, the movie is given on one hand and taken away with the other, and it's a zero something. I'm going to throw this scary. You should be scared by this thing. But but your but your characters aren't oh oh but and it doesn't do anything to address that like you say that tracking shot right um through the centrifugal kind of living area of the uh, spacecraft at least had Jerry O'Connell aside um it had uh, sorry I just can't see past Jerry O'Connell in this film he's terrible um. Uh, at least showed promise of audacity and I thought well look at least on a technical level yeah we're going to get to see a bit of Brian Depart and then after that nothing, nothing. <laughs> like you say everything it's kind of everything uh, it's the cinematography yeah it's it work, it's perfunctory it's, it's rule of thirds boring it doesn't really <laughs> do anything wrong but it's not sticking its neck out to try and achieve anything with any flair. It's just there and it's competent and it's fine. I'm not claiming I would have done a better job, you know, from a movie with this budget and the talent involved, you would expect differently. But I just, I, the real problem is the script. And I just don't understand what about that script attracted anyone to it, any of the talent involved. I can only assume it's one of those for the one of the for the studio pictures right and rather than it just being one or two big names who had to do this for the studio so they could get to make the movie they wanted to make after somehow they've netted four five six like really good actors and a director plus jerry o'connell and (laughs) yeah i'm absolutely baffled by it 
I just found it so, um, uh, and I don't mean it in a, a offensive term. I just found it to be so uh, retarded and retrograde in so so many ways. Just yeah. baffled. And really? I'd actually I'd actually seen this movie before, and I don't remember it being this bad. And sitting down to watch it again now, I'm like, all right, yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah, you, just, you you just have to wonder who wrote this finale and how that got signed off. I mean, if that this is your big emotional climax, the film, it's, it's, it, there's a brief like 20 seconds of thing like technical innovation that I like when they go into that kind of the big white room where uh, which I think is where Apple keep Johnny Ive these days yeah. um, <laughs> the big white expanse and that looked quite cool for like you know 30 seconds but then yeah. it just turns into this uh, you know alien CG holiday snaps with yeah. Gary Sinise so blandly narrating the, the downfall yeah. of an entire species. It's like well, a little bit of emotion here, please. It's like they're wandering Just... through that Microsoft HoloLens prototype or something. <laughs> and that's that's the, that's one, and it's not the biggest problem by any means, but again, right, if you're going to try and wring any kind of emotional investment out of that scene, don't let it centre around Gary Sinise, because the one thing Gary Sinise cannot do effectively as an actor is emote all that well, yeah. right? Gary Sinise's idea of being emotionally racked is the and it's those his his eyes are such a double edged sword. He has such intense eyes, but Gary Sinise's range of expression in these things go from okay, my mouth is straight, my eyes are <laughs> piercing. Yes. Okay, now I'm emotionally upset. The corners of my mouth move slightly. My eyes remain the same. That's Gary <laughs> Sinise emoting that he's upset by what he's viewing. And like you said, I just <laughs> no 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 wrong character, wrong character. Give it to Robbins. Give it to Cheadle, preferably. Um, yeah. Just, just, um, just wrong in all respects. Abort, abort, abort. <laughs> um, now, Mission to Mars was accompanied, as so many fad uh, movie fads uh, are, by a competing studio picture along a similar theme, and that would be Red Planet, Scott. Yes, Space Year 2000's other dueling Mars movie. Um, Red Planet starts off with Carrie Ann Mossy's Mission Commander Bowman uh, narrating the setup for the movie in first of its many terrible attempts at exposition. <laughs> uh, Earth's natural resources have been depleted, so an effort was undertaken to terraform Mars by seeding it with oxygen-producing algae. However, they haven't been observing the results they expected, so a manned mission is sent to work out what happened. A group of specialists are assembled, however, as just about the only time their professions are referred to is in Mossy's opening dialogue, you'll forgive me if I don't bother relaying them to you. The exception to this is mechanical systems engineer Gallagher, played by Val Kilmer, whose duties extend to shepherding their robot explorer bot, repro reprogrammed from a deadly attack drone. Can't see that going wrong at any point. No, sir. Uh... There's yet another orbital mishap, uh, this time a solar flare frying the ship's circuits, which sees Gallagher and the rest of the team abandon the mothership and make a suboptimal landing on Mars while Bowman tries desperately to repair the vessel. The crash claims the life of Terence Stamp's Chantilas, depriving the crew of much-needed cod philosophical soundbites. They head off in the rough direction of the habitation module that's been sent out in advance, only to find that it's been destroyed and the algae that should be covering the planet are missing. It doesn't seem like they'll have enough oxygen to figure out these mysteries, but it turns out that the atmosphere is just about breathable. This solves one problem, although another one presents itself when Killbot 3000 returns to its old programming and starts waging a guerrilla war against them. The surviving... seen, sorry, that sounds like a really poor firmware flash update's <laughs> taking place. Yes. Couldn't you just brick it? 
at least then I'd just have to connect it back up to iTunes. But no. <laughs> uh, so the surviving crew of Gallagher, Tom Sizemore's Birkenall, Benjamin Bratz, Santon, and Simon Baker's Pettengill attempt to get back into contact with Bowman and ultimately get off the surface while avoiding their killer robo-pet and the inexplicable solution to their missing algae-slash-destroyed habitat in the same of, shape of some all devouring oxygen secreting insect things that the insect pool that the film pulls directly from its ass. <laughs> At the very least, Red Planet doesn't take itself as seriously as Mission to Mars did, which makes it more fun by a very marginal amount. And Kilmer, Sizemore, and Moss have, at the very least, shown some charisma together. The other actors might as well not be there, but that's not really their fault. The script is, to be polite, dreadful, with chunks of dialogue that do not sound like something humans would be able to conceive of, let alone speak. Uh, perhaps it was written by Martians, who I assume are more tolerant about just having torrents of expositional dialogue issue forth in lieu of any more organic way of introducing it. Uh, Red Planet does, however, present uh, uh, a few rather more sensible questions, as opposed to Mission to Mars, or heaven forfend Robinson Crusoe on Mars, uh, regarding the fate of the terraforming effort, but ultimately, unfortunately, Unfortunately, there's apparently no confidence that it would have been enough to take the audience along for the ride, hence this silly diversion with the murder bot. To be fair, that's probably accurate, as magic bug from literally nowhere is a pretty poor answer regardless of the questions, and frankly, not all that much further along the hard sci-fi spectrum than plants that grow pepperoni sausages. <laughs> uh, its effects work was, I guess, pretty decent as of 16 years ago, and I think it holds up yeah. reasonably well, but so much of it's focused on that damned robot that it's just of little interest. Uh, Often with the concurrently-ish released similar subject matter or film, filmic coincidences, one is clearly better than the other. In this case, it's very much a Norsco drawer. Uh, with Mission to Mars, uh, Red Planet perhaps disappoints very marginally less, but that's only because it seemed much less promising than a Brian De Palma film. And frankly, both are dull and entirely avoidable. Um, I, I, as much as I would love to agree, Scott, on principle, I can't. Uh, and the only reason for that is that I've been very uh, time poor this week in terms of how much space I've had to prepare for this podcast. And I started watching Red Planet last night, fell asleep at, and I think I told you earlier, the 20 minute mark, I just checked and it wasn't, it was about 17 and a half minutes. <laughs> that was enough to have experienced plenty, 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 <laughs> plenty. Uh, in the interim, I have had no opportunity to go back to Red Mars, uh, Red Planet, nor shall I endeavour to do so <laughs> no. at any time. Not a great idea. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I did see enough to agree with uh, a lot of what you said. I saw some of the uh, the CG work. I think the first scene where they fire up uh, Amy, is it? Yeah. Um, what it was clearly when I realised it was clearly CG, I thought, well, that's actually not bad uh, for, as you say, sixteen years old now. Mm -hmm. um, so th there was a, certainly a lot more to um, a lot more to say about the movie in terms of its visual presentation than uh, Mission to Mars. Um, however, as you point out, I think alarm bells rang immediately uh, when the first sort of five minutes of the movie are spent listening to a voiceover from the main character telling you everything that, <laughs> as you quite rightly point out, Scott, you would hope to arise organically uh, throughout the uh, the opening act of the movie uh, through, you know, 
you know that stuff that they used to have in films, dialogue between interesting characters, etc., <laughs> etc. Et <laughs> stuff like that. At the point at which I switched off, I think we'd had the incident whereby the ship was uh, the ship was fried by the radiation or ga- uh, gamma burst. I think that's that's labelled. However, I pretty much made up my mind that I didn't really want to watch it past that point because immediately preceding that, there is a scene where the crew sit around the table and Carrie Ann Moss um, again um, in the unlikely position of NASA ever sending a mission of this type um, and length anywhere with only one female crew member aboard. Carrie Ann Moss sits uh, with the rest of the crew around the table uh, and the leader of this mission is subjected to just the most misogynistic claptrap <laughs> at the hands of, uh, what's his name? I think that was Tom Sizemore. Sizemore. Yeah. At the hands of uh, Tom Sizemore that I thought, oh great, this is actually not a mission to Mars in the respect we were thinking. It's simply just uh, an endurance mission to see how long a woman can survive sustained misogyny and zero gravity. <laughs> um, and the fact that this, the fact that such misogynistic insubordination is so openly shown to the, <laughs> to the leader of this mission by everyone involved. Just, it's not something that's going to happen with professionally trained astronauts. But, again, we're told in the opening minute uh, how many of these people are just, you know, maverick characters, etc., etc. You know the kind of people you'd want to send on a life-or-death mission to another planet upon which the <laughs> lives of 7 billion people rested? Yes, <laughs> that's right, those mavericks. So, yeah, I saw nothing to entice me to want to watch this any further, and I shall not be doing so. Some thoughts from the Twitter from our friend Matt Toller, M. Toller, on the Twitters, uh, regarding these two, uh, Bontrostis. <laughs> he thought that Mission to Mars was the worst possible Mars movie until he saw Red Planet. Nothing but contempt for both. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that, very fair comment um, he goes on to say amazingly I've heard Ghosts of Mars is worse still but he's not man enough to find out now we've done that yes. experiment for you yes. it is worse don't bother no <laughs> We were going Let's... to talk about it on this podcast, but it was a bit too depressing to even think of watching that again. So yeah, don't don't do it, Matt. Lest the abyss stare back into you. <laughs> I've got the hiccups now, which could be problematic. Um, 2005's Doom. Then, uh, if you asked me to go to Mars, there would be a very limited set of circumstances, all of which I would require full further authorship of, that could convince me to go. One of those would be, you get to go through a really cool teleportation device and hang out with the rock on the other side. You guys will be totally invincible, and you'll use big guns to shoot crazy alien demon things. You'll get to spend some time with Rosamund Pike as well. Now, such opportunities are not open to me, but I certainly see the attraction to Carl Urban, and as such, we now have our two leads for arguably one of the daftest studio movies ever to have been granted a budget and a green light. Urban and Dwayne Johnson are elite soldiers of much eliteness who must travel with their team to Mars to investigate some strange happenings at the Olduvai Research Facility, of which Urban's estranged sister, Rosamund Pike, is a high-ranking member of the scientific team. DNA is being messed with, those ever-popular narrative devices and title of my new musical project, The Extra Chromosomes, once again (laughs) factoring into the equation, and basically the whole thing is an excuse for macho posturing designed to titillate 12-year-old boys who, the studio system assumes, are happy to see largely bloodless gun battles and pretty women not taking their clothes off. This is a movie in which the rookie, when he pauses briefly before entering a lift, is lambasted with the earnestly delivered growl, Hesitation cast lives. (laughs) A lift. Now, (laughs) Doom 
is a movie of the video game of the same name, if you didn't know. And at the point at which Doom the movie was made, video games in general were still beholden to a lack of maturity and narrative authority that we have only recently begun to see the tide turn against. Never mind the time at which the the game Doom was made. Having (laughs) said that, if you were going to pick any video game whatsoever of the last 40 years to turn into a movie... Doom would still be in the bottom percentile, as, narratively, it is as downright retarded as the worst of them, boiling down to big man with big gun go shooty-shooty at monsters, <laughs> and the closest thing to a plot development being finding a blue door and realising that your red key doesn't work on it. <gasps> The doors were colour-coded to the keys all along. Sure, it's an action-heavy game, but the mistake there is assuming that partaking in that action immersively with controller in hand will somehow translate to sitting on your bum next to a sweaty stranger for two hours while squinting at the screen, trying to figure which shadowy figure in the purposely poorly lit corridor is the good guy and which is the monster. Actually, is it a monster or is it two good guys? Wait, is that even a corridor? (laughs) Ironically enough, having said that, the most fun Doom the movie delivers is when it switches briefly to a first-person camera perspective for a corridor gun battle, aping the game and providing some badly needed humour, both intentional and unintentional. By that point, we'll take it however we get it. The movie's big and dumb with the best of them, but its biggest crime is taking itself far too seriously. Nowadays, Dwayne Johnson has the clout to pick and choose a bit more, but here he was very much having to work with whatever material he was given, and this was a project the then-unpopular Arnold Schwarzenegger left open. It's sufficiently poor in both filmmaking terms and box office return that I remember thinking at the time I would be surprised if Johnson went on to much. However, I'm glad that he has, and perhaps we can all just place the whole sorry shambles behind us now. Yeah, I'd remembered this film as being absolutely terrible, but... On sober reevaluation, I'd say this is just merely terrible. Yeah. There's at least a few interesting points, mainly in watching Rosamund Pike slumming it and Dexter Fletcher's hilariously bad CG robo wheelchair thing. <laughs> um, but perhaps the best moments come from Johnson's heel turn in the final reel when he issues yeah. some terrible orders with a steel that would see him be a really effective antagonist in a film if he ever decides to go that way. Um, unfortunately, after two minutes of this, it devolves into a horrible CG fight that looks much worse than the game ever did. Uh, I take it back, Doom's absolutely terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I was interested, I did a bit of reading on it, and um, the producers were talking in ways that sound like sensible, and that's not like a lot of the things I've been saying. They've just done such a terrible job of it. They, they were going for this balance between the CG effects and practical prosthetic effects mm-hmm. um, for the same reason we, we normally talk about the CG effects. The CG stuff, well, CG heavy, tends not to look all that believable. But there's a flip side to the argument that we've not had case to use in this podcast so far. And is, while I have no trouble believing that prosthetics used in Doom, uh, Doom are real physical items, I just can't believe how amateurish, low-budget, and stupid they look. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and, and just because of that, all the action scenes are ruined before they start. Um, there was dancers inside those Xeno suits and aliens, which lent a credibility to their movement. And somehow, getting Doug Jones in a big pile of plastic just somehow detracts credibility <laughs> from it. And these char- the character design of this game is all just this film is all just like melted candles the, the, <laughs> the, the, the first person perspective is really the only original element in this entire film and it's uh, way too slow to feel anything like the film mm-hmm. and had it been the multiplexes would have been awash with vomit so I understand why it's not it's just dull rather than inducing motion sickness but uh, yeah I, I wasn't really a good idea at the best of time 
If uh, I remember correctly, Scott, you and I, I don't, I don't know if, I can't remember, I don't think Drew was no. there on that occasion, but you and I saw this in the cinema, right? Yeah. And if I recall correctly, the most interesting thing about that visit to the cinema is that we spent a good deal of time looking at your new uh, phone, which was the Motorola Razor Z, <laughs> if I remember correctly. So there you go. That's how good Doom was. We were more interested in a flip phone. Yeah. Very puzzling to watch these days and see uh, The Rock, see Flex Cabana have no charisma with, mm. or, or no uh, chemistry with anyone else in the film. It's just strange because he's normally so endlessly watchable, but in this, no one seems to have brought their game, yeah. let alone an A game. Like he's, he's better in the Fast and Furious movies, right? As much as I hate mm. those damn things, let alone, uh, sorry, um, even in spite of the fact that his character in those movies is immeasurably less complex than his character in this movie. Yeah. And yet somehow his performance is better and more enjoyable. It's as if the whole sort of shoddy, um, the, the shoddy realisation of the film has just by osmosis seeped into the man and he's just just cannot deliver any sort of charismatic engagement. Very bizarre. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall on the set to see what was happening, especially because I, I'd completely forgotten, I think, up until recently that Rosamund Pike was in this. Yeah. You know, Oscar-nominated <laughs> Rosamund Pike. And I'm thinking, isn't it? time I'd, I'd think back now and i remember sitting in the cinema thinking what what oh my days she's not gonna want this on her cv i bet she's so embarrassed even she's not even told her family she's doing this it's just just bizarre i would have loved to have been there to see what was going on but but yeah, not, I mean, but not so interested that i want to watch any of the making stuff on the making of oh, stuff no. on the dvd i mean again i could probably see there there is at some level a high concept of this where it's, it's not a bad idea because essentially they've went let's make aliens but with doom yeah but the problem is they've done such a bad job of making aliens with yeah. doom it's not it's, recognizable as that <laughs> exactly um yeah there, there's just no redeeming feature to this film at all uh, another one to stick onto your ignore pile um, so taking, uh, let's take a dog leg into animated territory then, Scott, and uh, you wanted to speak a bit about Cowboy Bebop, the movie, right? Yes, Cowboy Bebop movie. Now, first, The Confession. We had a few films on their initial coverage list to this, which were Mars-related, but not quite Marsy enough. You know, something like Capricorn 1, which is an excellent film, but it's more of a conspiracy film than it is a Mars one. Uh, nonetheless, 2001's anime feature of the series, Cowboy Bebop, variously subtitled as The Movie or Knocking on Heaven's Door, uh, remained uh, remained in, largely due to petitioning by me, because I love Cowboy Bebop. Although it's set on a Mars so distinct from the Red Planet that we know and tolerate that, by the rationale mentioned earlier, it ought not to be part of this episode. But it is. Deal with it. Uh, <laughs> You've played your joker. <laughs> consider it play payback for uh, some of the rather less enjoyable films that we've spoken about, which we've had to do with your bath, so stop complaining. Um, even if this Mars might as well be Earth, for all the difference there is in this fully terraformed, urbanised Mars that looks like a fusion of New York and Morocco. Uh, for the uninitiated... Uh, Spike Siegel is a space-going hitman turned bounty hunter, uh, the rather laid-back captain of the good ship Bebop. He's joined by Jet Black, a former space cop, Faye Valentine, a space con artist, and Ed, a space hacker girl boy thing, and also Ayn, an intelligent, genetically engineered, implausibly cute space corgi. Uh, the TV series fleshes out these characters quite a bit and deals also with the sort of existential emotions that's perhaps outside what you might be expecting from a cartoon, but for the most part this film dives straight into the narrative and does a decent job of letting you pick up what's needed of the characterisation without reference to the series. Uh, the narrative concerns a terrorist threat made to the good people of Mars after an explosion spreading an entirely new and unknown pathogen leaves hundreds dead. 
the Mars government offers a tremendous bounty for the capture of these terrorists, and serendipitously, Faye has a lead in the form of a hacker who eventually leads them to the leader, Vincent Villagio. He's an ex-Special Forces bod, marked down as dead after the last war, but who'd actually undergone a secret, presumably illegal, trial of a vaccine. Uh, the only survivor of a test of the pathogen that he's now using, partially as revenge, partially as a deranged vision of helping humanity after the vaccine left him unable to tell dreams and reality apart. Uh, tracking him down does not go well for Faye. Meanwhile, Spike and Jet are chasing another angle, the exploding truck belonging to a pharma company that, on probing, has a suspiciously high level of security, headed by Electro Oberoa, uh, who's also on the trail of Vincent as a matter of urgency, what with them having created the pathogen and would very much rather that it didn't become a ma- matter of public knowledge, which would probably happen if Vincent executes his plan to viral bomb the upcoming Halloween parade. So, naturally, it's up to Spike and Co, eventually aided by Electra once she figures out that they're on roughly the same team to stop this, which also uncovers the past relationship between Electra and Vincent. So, as mentioned, I thought, I love Cowboy Bebop, with which in attitude I can best describe as the space western that Firefly very much wishes that it was. It's a gorgeous looking anime, with lovely fluid animation of the action sequences. The music, of course, deserves special mention. The soundtrack is one of the elements that set the series apart from its peers, and its fusion of jazz, opera, and country and western and rock is distinctive and enjoyable, uh, just as much in this film as it was during the series. It's very well paced, uh, with a great mix of character moments and plot progression mixed in with the action. It's also deftly written, uh, with some great great lines for most of the characters. Only Vincent comes across as being a touch too generic, even by director Sinichiro Watanabe's own admission. Uh, Not that this hinders my enjoyment any, as it's tremendously fun, hugely entertaining movie, and that should be enjoyed by anyone, and I partly recommend that y'all do so. I've somehow managed in the intervening years, despite you having procured me a copy of this movie, to uh, to actually get around to watching it. Uh, I, I'm not the biggest fan of anime in, in the world, certainly outside of Studio Ghibli, but um, is, am I going to enjoy this, Scott? Yes, yes you are. That is good to know. Um, and then I suppose finally, thankfully, after some of the... Um, squalor we've found ourselves in for the last hour or so scott (laughs) yeah we get to finish on a a relatively high note with the recent matt damon starring the martian ridley scott's movie sees mark damon's mark watney stranded on mars after a fierce storm causes the first manned mission to mars have to scrub and take off early Uh, but unfortunately on the way back to the ship uh, an unplanned flying radar dish slash watney interface scenario knocks him out and his crewmates are unable to find him so they're forced to leave without him Uh, so with the rest of the universe thinking him dead Watney must find a way to initially survive, firstly the mild impaling that he took, and then a longer-term solution for the whole hostile, barren planet thing. Uh, The parallels with Robinson Crusoe on Mars are obvious, although there's no monkey, so clearly this is an inferior film. Yeah. Sausage plants aside, there's still the same need to fulfil the basics, food, oxygen, and contacting Earth to ask for a lift home, the details of which are perhaps best left for those interested to discover it's probably still close enough to being recent that I feel, but I'll probably err on caution for the side of uh, spoilers. It's too spoilerific. Yeah. Of course, once NASA knows that he's alive, they have to do their best to resupply him and bring him back home, which has its own set of challenges, which again, best left uncovered to those who haven't seen it yet. Now, the selling point of the book that this was based on, and therefore the film, is that it's at least on nodding terms with scientific accuracy, or 
at the very least, it's closer to hard sci-fi than anything else we've spoken about on the rest of this podcast. But frankly, scientific accuracy isn't really anyone's primary concern when going to see a film like this. It's basically about human ingenuity in the face of adversity and the human spirit sustaining against the odds. And this, I guess, mainly shows up in Watney's sense of humour, which you will either like or you won't, uh, which is perhaps a wider criticism of the film and also the book. Uh, While I find its dialogue entertaining, it's not in any shape good. Uh, Better, though, are the visuals for this film, which um, look really impressive. Some absolutely stunning uh, visual work on what they put up here. Some really nice design of the kind of character setup and the the habitats that he has and the landers and all these kind of things look really good. Uh, It's largely centred around a terrific performance from Matt Damon, who is no stranger to giving you know really good performances, and this is one of his best. Uh, he's not entirely carrying the whole movie on his shoulders, but uh, certainly he's easily the the central point of it, and he gives a a great turn that's uh, nuanced enough to be uh, likable, and also has the the kind of the, the hints of desperation that creeps in, but doesn't let it kind of overcome him. So it's a it, it presents a nice human story. That he's very much displaying the sort of uh, uh, character that I'm sure we'd all like to be if we were faced with such a, a ludicrously uh, overwhelmingly odd situation. He, he, he's not one to give up and that's uh, that's obviously commendable. Um, the rest of the supporting cast do reasonably well with a few exceptions. Um, I'm not quite sure what Jeff Daniels is playing at in this film. Mm. Uh, as, as the NASA bod, he just seems a bit weird. I'm not quite sure how to display it. But he's, he's kind of there. Yeah, um, but, but him aside, I think the rest of the supporting cast is, is quite likeable. They're not given a, a lot to do. It's mainly talking about the, of course, uh, the, the main focus is on Mars. But yes, uh, between those guys and uh, a script that I find amusing and uh, a narrative that uh, is compelling enough. Uh, it's obviously a tremendous story of fictional survival. Uh, I just found The Martian to be a very entertaining movie. Yeah, by and large, I agree with you, Scott. The Martian is a, a pretty decent movie. It certainly sits better with me as a movie um, than it did as a, a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, regular listeners to the show will know that I am by no means a fan of the book, having looked forward to it and the praise that was heaped upon it. I actually found it to be sub-Dan Brown in the quality of its writing and the dialogue absolutely risable. However, as a film, uh, while I still have some of the same grievances with it, it's certainly a, a notch above. It does ride, as you say, largely on the shoulders of Matt Damon. Uh, and an, uh, it would have been an entirely different film had it involved an actor with uh, with less obvious charisma. But the the boy just about pulls it off. And uh, even if, like me, you're one of the people left rubbing your head wondering why everybody was fawning over the book, um, I would still recommend that you, you check out The Martian. Uh, obviously, Ridley Scott's reputation has been on the wane, uh, probably, for a little while now. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Um so it was it was a pleasure to see a film actually so relatively well crafted um and that sidestepped some of the pitfalls of of Prometheus and his other more recent works as well. Um and sees him if not back at the top of his game then certainly uh, reminds us that the guy can still um, wrangle a decent movie um, that commands that sort of budget um, mm, yeah. and probably the most heartening thing for me about this movie is that very much in the same vein as Inception, it's a movie which is at least kind of intelligent in a way that I would expect to have put most multiplex audiences off. Yeah. And the reception of this movie and its financial success, um, A, highlights probably how cynical I am in that respect, <laughs> um, but also 
it, it gives um, a great deal of insight into something that the movie studios kind of remembered for a while after Inception, but were forgetting again, which is that their similar opinion of multiplex audiences as being vacuous, empty vessels of of uh, carboniferous <laughs> bone uh, shrouded in low quality meat, uh, you know, is is probably slightly misplaced, and that actually the average uh, cinema audience is capable of dealing with slightly more intellectual subject matter in their blockbusters and it's not always a bad idea to spend 100 150 200 million dollars on something that isn't just uh, cg robots kicking other cg robots in the cg testicles <laughs> so there was a lot to uh, celebrate about the martian in that respect not a perfect movie and as i say uh, not the director at his best not even i would argue matt damon at his best to be honest i still found some folks there but certainly heartening and well worth uh, an hour and 45 or two hours of anyone's time. Uh, just another shout out from Matt Toller on Twitter. He gave us a, an opinion on the Martian. He thought it was pretty great despite being a little safe feeling. Uh, often compares it to gravity, whereas gravity had lots of energy and desperation, but fatally flawed science. Martian is the opposite. Mm. Well, fair comment. And uh, just to skip back to Total Recall, just uh, while we're on the subject, <laughs> while we're there, uh, doesn't know how we'd improve Total Recall. Should be squarely in the so bad it's good territory, but it's somehow still great with Verhoeven being the only director who can so successfully thread the needle between earnestness and satire regarding violence. Um, mm. yeah, we certainly can do, and I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to talking about Starship Troopers one of these days on, on one of oh, these big podcasts. Time. Big time. I think that's actually, I can't remember, just to skip with The Martian, I can't remember if I mentioned that at the time we discussed it in uh, in a separate podcast, but I think that was my big criticism of it as a movie was that. I was never given the sense of Matt Damon being in any particular isolation. The movie never convincingly conveyed to me the notion that this was a this was the the man furthest removed from all other human contact in the history <laughs> of mankind fighting for survival. There was a, an an absence of that isolation and loneliness somehow in the tone of the film that uh, I felt removed me from it a bit. But yes, still. It's still very decent. So I think that's probably enough outer space shenanigans for now. Feel free to let us know if you've not covered your favourites, unless your favourite is Ghost of Mars, in which case seek immediate medical attention. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, we shall be back um, shortly with another uh, look what we're doing next time. We're going to be comparing and contrasting, aren't we? We're going to be talking about uh, Jacob's Ladder and Shutter Island. So Indeed. That should be interesting to look forward to. It's been a while since I've seen either of those two films, so looking forward to yep. watching those again. Um, let us know your thoughts on them. Uh, do that perhaps the best ways on Twitter that's at FudsOnFilm uh, you can also do so on Facebook that's facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm or even just old fashioned email us at podcast at FudsOnFilm.com as I say that's that's quite enough for us for now uh, we hope you join us on the 10th uh, but until then goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Craig I'm not really Colonel Kurtz bye bye